America and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our guest is General John Abizaid, a former United States ambassador to Saudi Arabia and the United States' longest-serving commander of Central Command, or CENTCOM. General Abizaid served in the United States military for over three decades across several continents, including command of American forces in the 1983 invasion of Grenada, the Persian Gulf War, and the war in Bosnia and Kosovo. When General Abizaid assumed command of CENTCOM, it was responsible for the area spanning Pakistan, Afghanistan, Central Asia, the Middle East to the Levant, Egypt, and the Horn of Africa. As CENTCOM commander, he oversaw the war efforts in Afghanistan and Iraq from 2003 to 2004. After retiring from military service, General Abizaid took the role of Distinguished Chair of the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point and became a Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Just prior to his ambassadorship, General Abizaid served as a senior advisor for the Secretary of Defense and advised the Ukrainian Minister of Defense on reforming and strengthening military forces. He served as ambassador to Saudi Arabia from 2019 to 2021 and oversaw a crucial period in U.S.-Saudi relations that included deepening cooperation on countering jihadist terrorist organizations and the tension over the horrible murder of U.S. resident and journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The United States' foreign policy toward the Middle East took on a new dimension after the most devastating terrorist attack in history on September 11, 2001. That day, 20 years ago this year, 19 al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked four planes shortly after takeoff. Two planes struck the World Trade Center in New York City, a third hit the Pentagon, and a fourth would have impacted the U.S. Capitol had heroic passengers not overpowered the terrorists and crashed it into a field in Pennsylvania. 2,977 people were murdered and nearly 10,000 more injured. The 9-11 attacks led to two wars, one in Afghanistan and another shortly after in Iraq. The invasion of Afghanistan took place within a month of the 9-11 attacks, following a joint resolution in Congress. In March of 2003, the Bush administration extended the war on jihadist terrorists to Iraq, based on the belief that Saddam Hussein's hostile government had weapons of mass destruction and ties to al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations. Successful initial military campaigns morphed into protracted counterinsurgencies in both places. As the United States and its coalition partners struggled to consolidate military gains and forge sustainable political orders hostile to jihadist terrorists. Many Americans are calling to end the so-called endless wars, but wars do not end when one side disengages. The jihadist terrorist organizations have pledged to continue an endless jihad against all civilized people. We welcome General Abizaid today to discuss the evolution of these long wars, 
what is at stake across the greater Middle East, and what we might learn from our experience since 9-11. This conversation with General John Abizaid was recorded as the Taliban began to capture provincial capital cities and days before the fall of Kabul. This episode is meant to place the conflict in Afghanistan in context of the long war against jihadist terrorists that began with the most destructive terrorist attack in history on September 11, 2001. General John Abizaid, welcome to Battlegrounds. Let me begin by saying what an honor it was to, to serve with you over so many years as your cavalry squadron commander and then at Central Command. And it's 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 great to host you now on, on Battlegrounds and to hear your thoughts about really the situation in the Middle East, but really, uh, you know, we're, the situation the United States is in globally. So welcome. Great to see you. Great to be here, HR. Thanks for having me. Hey, so, so John, you, you were the first to use the term the long war. And, and, and when I served with you in Central Command, I thought it was really important that, that you made that point because so many people at the time, I mean, they were, they were really adopting short-term solutions to what I think we recognized was a long-term problem. And and you were the longest, you know, the longest serving CENTCOM, Central Command Commander, the commander with responsibility for the for the greater Middle East. And as you reflect back now, two, two decades later, right, after the, the 9-11 attacks, the most devastating terrorist attack in history, what do you think are the strategic lessons we should learn from our experience or, or, over the last two decades? That's a great question, HR. You know, when I when I think about the term long war and we think about where we are today, it was a long war. It is a long war. And by the way, when we leave, it will continue to be a long war because of so many different sorts of problems associated with what goes on in the Middle East. So, you know what, let me give you a few, I, I would say, very quick lessons that, that uh, I took from this period and reflection subsequently on what happened and what is happening. Um, first of all, you have to operate in a period of calm, reflection, and valid planning. And I think after 9-11, we essentially were operating from a period of, of um, we must do something, we have to strike back, we're afraid, terrible things are liable to happen. You know, we created we created a condition where we did probably one of the worst things a country can do. And, and that is we rushed into a war yeah. and we rushed into the war without proper planning. And one of the other interesting lessons I, I took from that period is that we, we made some very bad assumptions. War in that part of the world would be easy. War would be, we would be welcomed by people throwing roses at us that liberation would happen as, as easily as it did when we finally got to France in 1944, uh, that it, there was uh, a, a great thirst to be liberated by the Americans um, in Iraq and a great thirst to be freed by the Americans in Afghanistan. And, and so many of these initial planning assumptions uh, that it would be quick, that it would be easy, that it would essentially transform the Middle East into a democratic region, not only the Middle East, but the whole Middle East, South Asia. Um, these were assumptions that, that never, ever really proved out. The other, the other 
real lesson I learned was that you you have to have an idea of where you're heading and it can't just be, let's go get them. If it's, let's go get them, then you're going to have problems. And if you move too quickly without really thinking things through, uh, you get the easy part done and then you're left holding a very, very difficult strategic problem. Yeah. And I just remember fighting that, that whole fight with you, you know, as, as you're, you know, the, I was uh, my title, I think, was the, the director of the commander's advisory group. But I was really learning, you know, I was, I was learning from you and and from our interactions across the region. And I just remember everyone at that time was taking this short term approach to this long term problem. And I remember the first visit to Afghanistan with you in, in mid maybe 2003 and and uh, and thinking that we are really underwhelming this. Right. We, we, we are not doing what is necessary to consolidate our military gains and get to a sustainable political outcome. And, and so I, I just wonder, you know, what do you think the lessons are, you know, from 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 the Afghan war? I, I, I'm, I'm kind of afraid that we're learning the wrong lessons. Right. I mean, I think that your point that we should maybe debate less about should we have done it and we should debate more who the heck thought it would be easy and why. And I think our our, our lack of preparation for what comes next. Right. After the after we unseat uh, the the, uh, the Taliban regime in 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 Afghanistan, really lengthened the, the war in Afghanistan, made it more costly. I mean, what do you think the real lesson of Afghanistan is as we're watching this really horrible humanitarian catastrophe and a catastrophe that's going to, that's going to have really very significant security and political ramifications? Well, HR, look, you know, we, we have to admit that immediately after 9-11, we, we moved very quickly. Yeah. We, we got armed forces involved. We moved to unseat the Taliban. We found a government that would be suitable to go into Afghanistan and, and lead it. But then in, in one of the great strategic mistakes of the period, we immediately started planning for operations in Iraq without ever consolidated our, ourselves properly in Afghanistan. And so we immediately put ourselves in a, in a position, which no great power should willfully do, which is put yourself in a position to fight a two-front war and never have two fronts been more dissimilar, more far apart, more logistically difficult than Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, only the United States with its great logistics capability could handle something like that. But when you go to one, don't finish it, and then go to another one, you create a dynamic where neither gets settled in a way that is appropriate. And then, like everyone knows, we soldiers know, you have to have a main effort. And once it became clear that we were going to go into Iraq, it had to be the main effort for geographic reasons, for strategic reasons, for all the reasons that we know. Right. So what would you say to Americans to make the case for sustained engagement in you know in South Asia in the Middle East because I think there really is this drive these days to sort of end these endless wars but as as you said at the beginning wars don't end right when we disengage right they they, they continue Afghanistan having lasted this long points out a real lack of our ability to form, build, train, and maintain 
armed forces of other countries that are capable of fighting properly. Now, why is that? Why didn't the Afghan army fight properly? Why didn't the Afghan army, after 20 years, get to the point that it actually could defend the country? Why didn't the Iraqi army show resiliency in the initial stages of the ISIS offensive back into Iraq after, the, after we had been there for 10 or 15 years? There, there's obviously something that we're missing. And, and really, one of the things that we're missing is not only our inability to make sure that the armed forces of the nation that we're trying to build are built properly, but the po politics of that nation has a chance to move forward. We, we seem to think that having elections is the path to success. But when we build sectarian parties and not secular parties, we're doomed to fail. And we did both of those things in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the final thing I would say about this it, is, it just can't be the military solving the problem. War, as you know better than anyone, you write about it all the time. It's a political endeavor. Yeah. If you don't have clear, concise, and achievable political goals, the military can only buy time. We bought 20 years in Afghanistan, but to do what? Yeah, you know, I, 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 this is a really important point, I think, because, you know, it is the integration of all elements of national power that I think is foundational to strategic competence, right? And, and you wage war to achieve sustainable political outcomes you know, consistent with what, you know, with what brought you into that fight to begin with. And, and I think that's what we lost sight of in, in, in both wars. And you often hear like, you know, there, there's no military solution in Afghanistan. Okay, of course there's not. Right? And, and, uh, and, and so what we need to do is mobilize our diplomatic and political efforts uh, to, to achieve a sustainable political outcome. You know, and sadly, though, I, I think that we had that in Afghanistan and, and we talked ourselves into defeat and disengagement. And, and on your point on, on security forces, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I think that we actually built forces that were dependent on us was, was the problem. And then when we completely disengaged from both places, right, Iraq and and uh, and Afghanistan, those forces were unable to stand on, on their own. And so what do you think the lessons are in connection with this long war? Right. Because I think the, the idea that, that, that I think is still is still sound is that we want to enable others to fight this long war against jihadist terrorists who continue to use mass murder. Right. As their principal tactic in, in a war against all civilized people. Uh, what, what can we learn and apply, right, to the to, to the long war against jihadist terrorists who are actually they're waging an endless jihad, right? We call it our endless war, and think we can we can end it, but it's really an endless jihad against us. Well, look, HR, you and I have had this conversation a lot over the years. It's an ideological struggle, and we did not hide an alternative. We did not have the people that were on our team, our side, provide an ideological alternative that their people were, would be willing to grab a hold of. You know, corruption in Afghanistan, corruption in Iraq, corruption in all of these places erodes the trust of the people. Mm -hmm. And as murderous and as terrible and as, as um, difficult of the ideologies that are represented by the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, etc., they, they provide a sense of stability to the people. That this is this is the real conundrum here, right? Here we are, the one of the the great forces for stability in the world, and yet we couldn't fight 
corruption properly. We couldn't provide stability. We introduced a political system for which the people in the region were not ready. And, and so our notion of ideological victory for democracy and good governance, we weren't able to bridge the gap from the point of occupation of military force to building a society that was worth partnering with and, and not trying to shepherd through. And by the way, we weren't able to do that in Afghanistan, weren't able to do it in Iraq. And when I look back to our experience in Vietnam, as you have so well written about, uh, or in Vietnam, I mean, we, you know, we weren't able to do it there either. So ideology is something that has to be attacked in a way where the lead for the ideological battle has to fall to the people in the region. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we have so many great friends right across across the uh, the greater Middle East and in South Asia. And, and these are these are people who who want a better life like we do for our children, right? And our grandchildren. And, and, uh, and, and they, they are committed uh, to, to fight against these jihadist terrorists uh, because it, it, they, they live there, right? And, and they're most at threat, right? I mean, the, of course, you know, the greatest numbers of, of the, the greatest numbers of, of victims of these jihadist terrorists are fellow Muslims, right? And, and so I, I would just ask you, would you share your thoughts with our viewers about, about why it's important to remain engaged in this fight in support of our partners. You know, you were obviously just recently just the ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and, and I think many Americans these days, they, they look at the Middle East and they think, wow, that's just like a mess to be avoided. Right? Well, why is it important to stay engaged with, with our friends and, 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 and partners uh, across the greater Middle East? Well, like it's important. Just look at the geography of the Middle East. Think of the think of the great natural resources that are present in the Middle East. Of course, we all want to get away from oil, but we're not going to get away from oil anytime soon. You know, the lifeblood of, of the Western economy, actually the global economy, will be oil for a long time. The trade routes which go through the Bab el-Mendeb, the Straits of Hormuz, the Suez Canal. I mean, when, when you think about this area, it is so strategically significant that it's always almost been necessary for a great power to sit astride those routes in order to allow global commerce and global harmony and prosperity uh, to move back and forth. But, you know, the Middle East is, it, it, it's just a crisis of, of crazy, um, sectarian violence at every level. I mean, we, we see Iran moving in ways where they, they have proxy forces working in such a way that they threaten uh, our friends in the region. Uh, but still, you know, people in the region don't want the ideology of ISIS to become ascendant. They actually don't want the ideology of the IRGC Quds Force in Iran to be ascendant. Yeah. So unfortunately, what we have right now in the Middle East are these two ideologies, Shia Islamic extremism led by Iran and Sunni Islamic extremism, as exemplified by Al-Qaeda and ISIS, that they, they are vying for the primary position of leadership in the region. And the moderate forces in the region don't have a chance to get themselves organized and provide leadership and provide ideological alternatives. So um, 
That's why it's a long war. And that's why we have to invest in friends in the region that are willing to take on the challenge of defeating the extremists, which to get back to your point about Saudi Arabia, I was so interested in going to Saudi Arabia as ambassador was because despite all of the bad publicity that the crown prince got as a result of the Khashoggi murder, et cetera, Saudi Arabia is moving forward against extremism in a way I've never seen it before. And here's a chance for a major country in the Middle East to defeat extremism on its own territory, but also to create an example for the other powers in the region to fight back as well. So uh, it's a tough problem for us, but it's not one where we need to have our military forces out front. We need to be backing up the people in the region to come to their own solutions, but we shouldn't abandon them. To abandon them will allow the forces of extremism to become much stronger and much more lethal. Gosh, I think you, you just make a really important point about the, the overall nature of the, of the conflict in the region is this, I think it's this, this, this cycle of sectarian violence, right? This interaction you know, between jihadist terrorists who can portray themselves as patrons and protectors of beleaguered Sunni communities and the Iranians, right, who are supporting these militias uh, who, who threaten those communities, right, from, from Yemen to, uh, to Iraq to, uh, to, to Syria to, to Lebanon, right? And, and so what, what more do you think can be done to arrest that cycle of violence, to break that cycle of violence and to separate, as you're mentioning, right, as you're, as you're alluding to, to separate these jihadist terrorists from sources of ideological support? Well, I, I think, unfortunately, we're moving in the wrong direction right now. And the reason I think that, it, it just look at what's going on today between Hezbollah and Lebanon, just today, major exchange across the border. Yeah. Uh, people had hoped for a long time that it, it wouldn't be so violent. Uh, but it just keeps coming back over and over again in a way where American lack of power in the region, American withdrawal has created a dynamic where regional powers have decided to step in in a way that neither supports the war against sectarianism or supports the diminishment of these radical ideologies. So you've got the Turks, you've got the Russians, you've got the Israelis, you've got the Iranians, you've got so many different powers now playing in the region, where did they come from and why are they playing in the region in a way that makes it less stable, not more stable? They, they came in because American power has diminished and the vacuum had to be filled in some fashion or other. And so the solution to the problem is not necessarily more American forces in the region, it's yeah. more American support for the forces of moderation in the region. And I, I think this is the problem that we, we don't quite understand. Of course, you know, we had served together. We think a lot alike about this. I mean, I, I, this, was, this was the idea that behind President Trump going to Riyadh. If you, if you look at, at his speech that he gave, I think it was in May of, uh, of 2017, and then King Salman's speech, it was unprecedented in, in connection with really calling out these Salafi jihadists, right, for, for, for using a perverted interpretation of Islam 
to justify their, you know, their political and criminal agenda. And, and, you know, so I, I think the sustained engagement with these partners who, and, and helping to amplify their voices, you know, is, is important to us in, in the long term. And, and so I would just ask you, like, what, what do you, how do you see the trends these days? We had the, the success of the Abraham Accords, I think, in connection with, you know, normalizing relations between Israel and, and countries in the region in a way that takes away the jihadist narrative of, you know, of the, of the Zionist crusader you know, conspiracy, you know, against the Arab world. Um, do, do you think the trend is in a positive direction in connection with uh, with, with the, the this war, as you often described it when we served together, this war within Islam? And, uh, and, and what do you think the next steps ought to be? Look, HR, I, I, I think that you have to go back in, into the history. And I, I think a good starting point is let's look at the conferences for world peace at the end of the First World War. Yeah. The, the British and the French largely drew the boundaries. Uh, the post-World War I order that was established at the end of the First World War is breaking down. And it's, it's not breaking down along national lines. It's breaking down along sectarian lines. If, if you were to put a map of the Middle East up, and show the national boundaries, and then you show control of regions, you'd see that control is really not by nationality. It, it's by secular groups or sectarian groups. Or so ethnic, group, ethnic groups like the Kurds, for example. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, this, this sectarian problem um, really tells me that we, we can't afford in the Middle East to be a status quo power. It, it's not going to, the boundaries are not going to ever come back. So what is it that we stand for in the region? And what we have to stand for is moderation and secularity. Secularity really yeah. is the antidote to sectarian violence and insanity. Yeah. So, I, I mean, right now, the ascendant power in the region, in my mind, is Iran. Yeah. You can now drive a convoy. Imagine this back in the days when we were trying to, to fight the fight the way we were fighting it in the early days of, in Iraq. Imagine you can run a convoy from Tehran to Beirut unimpeded. Right. This that, is the, 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 the Levantine land bridge that they've been seeking. Right. That's Iranian yeah. Revolutionary Guard Quds Force occupied territory where they have largely become ascended in a way that no one ever intended to happen in the Middle East. So this Iranian expansion, and it's not an expansion of Iran's land power, uh, borders, it's an expansion of Iranian power, Iranian hegemony uh, over the Shia communities out there. And it's uh, creating a dynamic where it's very unstable, especially at a time when American power is diminishing, American power is withdrawn. Look, I, and I get the argument that we need in the latter half of the 21st century to make sure we're able to deal with power competition with China and Russia in particular, especially Russia. But you can't abandon the Middle East. The Middle East without American power becomes a cockpit of negative ideologies, neither of which, whichever one becomes ascendant, is favorable to us. Already you've got the Saudis and the Emiratis trying to deal with the Iranians in a way I've never ever seen before because they don't believe that they can depend upon us anymore in a substantial way. 
And I think that's that's a recipe for disaster. No, they're hedging, right? And they're hedging because we keep telling them, hey, we're leaving the Middle East, right? <laughs> and we never actually leave, right? We're, I mean, we're still there. We're engaged. And we're engaged, I think, in meaningful and important ways. But just by saying that we're leaving, it encourages this hedging behavior with the Iranians, with the Russians. And, and so I, I just, I'd like to ask you about great power competition as it, as it manifests itself in, in the Middle East. But first, I'd like to just talk more about maybe Iran, right? So we have now this effort to apply the paddles to the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, to bring it back to life, right? Well, I, I happen to think it's dead already, right? Because, you know, the sunset clauses are kicking in in 2025. It was already a flawed deal. But there is this movement, I think, within the current administration to, to, to reconcile with Iran in the belief, I think, that you know, that, that the Supreme Leader will be like the Grinch on Christmas Eve, right? His his heart will grow two sizes bigger. He's going to fundamentally change. And I think we, we, we don't consider, you know, the ideology that drives that regime. Could you share your thoughts on the nature of the Iranian regime, what they're trying to do in the region and why it matters to us? And then maybe your thoughts as well on this effort to, to you know, to, to revive uh, the Iran nuclear deal. Well, the, look, HR, the, the JCPOA, as originally conceived, it, it made a lot of sense. It always makes sense to stop a power in the Middle East from gaining nuclear weapons. But it doesn't make any sense if you allow that regime then to gain power by other means, right. proxies in Yemen, proxies in Syria, proxies in Lebanon. You, you name it. Everywhere you well, look, a, a four-decade-long proxy war, a four-decade-long proxy war, right? And, yeah. and look at Iraq. Iraq can never stabilize. First of all, the the Iranians don't want Iraq to stabilize. They they don't want Iraq to come back into the Arab fold. They don't want to have a competitive power in the region. So they have completely atomized the Shia community through a whole series of different uh, Shia militias that compete against one another in a way that's so interesting. Can, can I share an anecdote with you? I was sure. in Herat, I was in Herat and, uh, <laughs> and I was in the consulate there and, and there was an Iranian businessman, right? I think he was from MO, MOIS probably. And, um, and we, we had this long conversation and part, as part of the conversation, he said, you know, Americans are like chickens. They make a lot of noise and they lay one egg. We Iranians are like fish. We make no noise and we lay lo lots of eggs, right? Hundreds of eggs. And so that's that's what they're doing, right? Is they're you know they're 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 they are atomizing. I think that's a great term you used. Uh, you know the Shia politics and and the and these 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 militia groups in in uh, in Iraq. And I think they want to keep the Arab world perpetually weak and enmeshed in conflict. But I'm sorry to interrupt you. But I, I mean, what, what, you know, I think. Your, your point, I think a lot of people don't realize, right, the Iranians don't back just one party, right? They back a number of parties because they, they are trafficking in sort of chaos and, and yeah. state weakness, right, which it, is. HR, yeah. I, I, I agree with you. Look, but also it's just not Shias that they back. They back other groups like yeah. revolutionary groups such as Hamas. They provide missiles to groups like the Houthis who really aren't necessarily what I would call the the average Sunni group, right? You know, they're an offshoot of, of the Shias, I mean. They're, they're, they're an offshoot. Or Alawis in Syria, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, all of these, yeah. it, to them, it's it's a matter of instability 
and being able to call the shots in these regions. It's a matter of their sphere of influence. They're not trying to conquer it. They're trying to control it. And this level of control was never addressed in the JCPOA, and it's not being addressed properly now. And even the last administration, for all the good that they did, and I thought it was good, in the Abraham Accords, they did not address the direct attacks that Iran was making on the global community. They attacked Saudi Arabia directly. They attacked Saudi Arabia indirectly from Yemen. I, I mean, it's just so, and then just the other day, you have IRGC drones attacking a ship on the high seas that's owned by uh, Israeli, Israeli businessmen, right, flagged somewhere else, but yeah, and, absolutely. And, and, and this willingness to continue to push away the international community and consolidate their own power can only end badly. So maybe we have no nuclear weapons from Iran if we get JCPOA 2 ratified, but we won't stop their expansion and their hegemony that they're seeking in the region. And, and that's a huge mistake. You also, by the way, starting to see Iranian power move into parts of Afghanistan in a way that should be very, very concerning for us as well. Absolutely. And, and you know, you know I, th I think this is a really important point that, that I think in the Obama administration, the fundamental flaw of the JCPOA, there are all kinds of flaws with it, right? The sunset clauses, missiles not being included, inadequate verification, but, but the fundamental flaw was that the, the relief of sanctions gave them the resources they needed to intensify the four-decade-long proxy war against you know, the great Satan, us, the little Satan, Israel, uh, and their Arab neighbors. And, and it will do the same again. And so you know, I, I think that, that really what we ought to do is force them to make a choice, right, between being a responsible nation, right, or you know, or suffering the consequences of, of economic isolation. I, and and, uh, and so how do you see the Iranian regime evolving, right? There was just a just an election, right? And you had Raisi, who's a, you know, who is a, a, a conservative, uh, you know, uh, a revolutionary, right, uh, win. But that probably doesn't even matter, right? Because the supreme leader in the IRGC are in charge of foreign policy and, and national security. But how do you look at stability in Iran? We've seen pro protests. I mean, I know it's hard to make these kind of predictions about authoritarian regimes and this kind of theocratic dictatorship in Iran. But, but is this a permanent condition uh, of, a, of a theocratic dictatorship in Iran? Or do you think there's a possibility of a transformation there? Well, yeah, I think there's a possibility. History shows us that nothing is permanent. You know, things ebb and flow all the time. They, they ebb and flow from monarchies to ideological governments to revolutionary governments, you name it. And Iran is a perfect example of that sort of thing. But, but right now, you know, my view of Iran is it's not a country. It's a militia. It's the IRGC yeah. Quds Force. Mm -hmm. And here, two days before, the new president, who's one of the, the worst hardliners that's ever been elected, Raisi, Two days before he shows up, the IRGC Quds Force is using drones against international shipping in one of the most important waterways in the world for right. global commerce. And, and, and against our forces in recent weeks as well in, in, in Iraq. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it, it's amazing what they are able to get away with. So, you know, my view is don't make the war against the Iranian nation. 
make the war against the IRGC Quds Force. Show the Iranian people that money that should be used to make their society a better and more prosperous place that can make their kids more capable of having a better life. Make, make them understand that the money that the regime is throwing at Hezbollah, uh, Hezbollah Shabi, the Houthis, uh, the various militias in Syria, show them that that money is being wasted in a way that it, that it, it makes the IRGC business profitable for the IRGC goods force in the mullahs that, that run around. Look, it's, it's got to be a limited regime. At some point or other, it will fall. But it won't fall if the international community continues to acquiesce to this, this notion of spreading the tentacles of Iranian power through the IRGC Quds Force. Right. And, and the relief of sanctions would essentially underwrite you know, their, their proxy war ag- ag- against us. And, and I, I think this is a really important point. I mean, I think we ought to keep the sanctions in place isolate the regime, impose costs on them, but don't take credit, right, for the failure of the Iranian economy. Give full credit to the corrupt uh, regime that's in power there and and those in the RGC and these bunyads, you know, the, this this group of, of the really mainly the children of the clerical leaders uh, who, who own the businesses, the beneficial owners of these companies who would benefit from the relief of sanctions. You know, I, I'd like to go back to a point you made earlier, right, about, you know, there is this kind of, uh, you know, I think conventional wisdom these days that, hey, we have to disengage from the Middle East so that we can compete more effectively uh, with, with, you know, with China and to a lesser extent, Russia. So would you would you maybe uh, share with your viewers how great power competition plays out in, in, in the region and what is at stake there? What, what are the trends that you see associated with the hedging behavior that we we, we alluded to earlier? Certainly, as, as you, you look at the posture of China, you, you need to pay the most attention, not only to their, their aggressive behavior in the South China Sea um, militarily, but, but also to really their very aggressive economic stance throughout the Middle East, throughout Central Asia, and down into Africa. The Belt and Road Initiative yeah. is designed to make China the preeminent economic power in the center of the world. And it's important for us to know that they are not doing that to help us. They are doing that in a way that's in direct competition with us. They present economic alternatives to American and European system that really we we shouldn't easily accept. Because with that, with that economic opportunity also comes political surrender to an ideology that's not ultimately friendly to us or anybody else. So China is a slow, economically expanding nation that deserves our confrontation, not militarily, but economically. And the center of the universe where the continent of Asia, Africa, and Europe come together happens to be the Middle East. And, and if you don't play in that area, you really lose your opportunity to claim to be a great power because through that area, all things pass. And with regard to Russia, you know, Russia's track record, China's track record is economic expansion, 
Russia's track record is search for warm water ports. Why are they in Tartus and Latakia? Absolutely. They're there in a way. Or, or, very, or, e- or Eastern, Eastern Libya, right? I mean, yeah, it's, exactly. It's Russian imperial strategy being played out by Vladimir Putin. And it's they're in the middle of this, this constant expansion uh, that ultimately will get them in trouble with the Europeans, the East Europeans in particular, but also us. Because at some point, there comes a point where an aggressive expansion has to be met with some sort of counteraction. And it has to be led by the United States. Yeah. So that having been said, you, you can't confront Russia and China without having some presence and say in what happens in the Middle East. A, a, a country like ours has to have strategic coherency across that entire part of the world. And if we take ourselves out of it, to me, our worst nightmare is China and Russia coming together against us. We should be thinking now about how do we keep China and Russia from coming against us with some of the peripheral countries like North Korea, Iran, et cetera. And you know, how do we prepare for a better future for the parts of the world where this competition is starting to shape up? And the Middle East is right in the middle of it. You know, and I think we ju- we just open the door for them <laughs> when we say, "Hey, we're we're leaving we're leaving the Middle East," and 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 you see that play out. I think in particular in in the Syrian civil war and Russia's really emphasis on getting in, in you know an airport and a port there uh, and controlling really a post civil war Syria. And and this is you know this is Putin's Potemkin peace plan in which he promises right that 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 really really over time he will work to eliminate Iranian influence or reduce it in Syria if countries in the region including you know our, our ally Israel you know support Assad staying in power and guarantee Russian interests in the post civil war Syria and that could never get traction unless we kept telling you know our fr- our friends and partners in the region that that we are leaving. So I would like to, to ask you, you know, Russia gets a lot, a big payoff, right, with, with very little investment. What, what do you think we could do more effectively? Right? How could we, you know, how could we communicate our, our, our policy uh, in a way that would, would bolster our influence in the region and maybe counter uh, Russia's influence? For example, in, in, in perpetuating, I think, this, these serial episodes of mass homicide, uh, which is the Syrian civil war. Well, of course, I mean, look, you've got also got to look at it from the Russian point of view, and you've got to look at it from the Chinese point of view, and you've got to look at it from the Iranian point of view. Part of the problem that we have as a great power is we thought that all things started and ended with us, that yeah. our our opponents didn't have a, a, a real say in the outcome. Right. And no, no, no authorship over the future, right? You know, yeah. and, and underestimating your opponent is one of the greatest sins that a great power could make. And I think, unfortunately, that's what's uh, what's happening here. But it, in, in Russia, for example, it, it's not that we should forcibly contest what Russia is doing now. We, we should provide support to those naturally um, anti-Russian imperial expansion ideas that exist in places like Ukraine, the Baltic states, Eastern Europe, uh, the broader Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, etc. They don't want a return of the Russians. No, they. But 
But the alternative to no American power is a competition from people like the Russians and the Turks. Russian-Turkish opportunities for competition in the Middle East are, are endless and have been around forever, not just in the Middle East, but also in Eastern Europe and in the, the steppes of, of Russia years and years ago. So, you know, these problems really require a careful thought out strategy. That doesn't mean having to have military forces in all places at all times. It means underpinning regimes that are capable of helping themselves. I, as you know, I was out in Ukraine as a senior advisor to the Ukrainian yeah. armed forces. Right. They were fighting hard. They were doing their best to contain Russian ambitions in the eastern part of the country, in the Donbass. They were building a modern armed forces. But the amount of support that we gave them was minuscule compared to what we could do. Didn't mean bring them into NATO. It meant giving them the support and the capability to fight corruption, to build an armed forces that was capable, to make Putin know that to go further would, would be to pay a price that he has to be unwilling to pay. But, but now you see the moves that the Russians are making to test the West with regard to Ukraine and Belarus and other areas. And it's, it's very, very concerning, not, not to mention what's happening down in Syria, et cetera. So look, these problems with great power competition will only get worse with the diminishment of American power. And so to, to redeploy to the flanks of the world and leave the middle of the world vacant is a huge strategic flaw. It's a mistake. To abandon these ideological contests to the worst ideologies we can imagine it is to give up what we have fought for ever since our country was born. You know, it is it is kind of a, re a revenge of geopolitics, right? I mean, these are these are the the writers of the early you know, 20th century, uh, you know, Spikeman and Mackinder, you know, who who really warned that you shouldn't allow a hostile power to dominate the Eurasian landmass and the areas we're talking about, right? The Middle East and Ukraine, uh, you know, the, the the Black Sea area and the Eastern Mediterranean. These are what these geostrategic writers called the shatter zones, right? Where competitions were, were playing out. And, and you know, Russia seems to be a master at this, right? To be able to, to really, you know, to, to invest a really small force uh, to, to gain a great deal of influence. And we see this from Eastern Libya, right? To, you know, to Syria. Uh, and then, and then, uh, and then of course, in, in the, in the former, you know, the, the former Soviet Republic areas that, are important to Putin because he wants to reestablish right Novo Russia. So at this at this point where you know we see I, I think increasing Russian aggression and and destabilizing actions. What do you think Russia is trying to achieve? What are their objectives? And what can we and our allies and partners globally, especially maybe with the Europeans, do to counter this aggression? You saw it really close up in Ukraine, and I appreciated the opportunity to talk with you to get your on the ground assessment. Uh, when I was when I was in the White House as National Security Advisor uh, about the situation in Ukraine and, and the actions of the Russians, you know, what 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 should our viewers know about what Russia is doing, what its objectives are, and what we can do to to counter uh, the, the, their efforts uh, where our interests are at stake? You know, the the look at Russian history, look at Russian imperial history, look at Soviet history, and, and you see how they push. They're always pushing for 
boundaries that are defensible. Deeper into Europe, the better. And they found themselves with the collapse of the Soviet Union, seeing those boundaries, seeing the near abroad vanish, seeing the Western enemy up against them in a way that they felt really put them in a position where the West could eventually take over um, their way of life and their aspirations to main, maintain themselves as a great nation. And so this, this paranoia of Russia has always been at play. This notion of, of being easily invaded means that you've got to have space, but it also means that you've got to have influence. And, and as you said, they, they play a weak hand very, very well, but it also makes them very dangerous. They're still the only power on earth that can destroy us in an afternoon should they decide to do so. Yeah. We, we've got to keep that in mind. So they have a lot of capability. They, they are expansionistic. They're antagonistic. They look to bring Russian influence into Belarus, into Ukraine. They, they look to push NATO out of the Baltics in particular. They, they look to do the same things that we see the Iranians doing in the broader Middle East, gain influence, gain hegemony, and that we see China doing in the South China Sea and in their Belt and Road Initiative. And so, you know, sometimes we, we soldiers, we only want to think in terms of forces, where the forces are. But it's not just military power, it's economic power, it's political power, it's right. the ability to influence. And, and Russia is very inwardly focused right now, but they're coming out of it. And they're coming out of it away in a way where they're starting to show how um, they're moving back to their historical trend of expansion to the east, expansion to the south, looking for an ally that can help counterbalance the United States power and that ally would be China. You know, we also have to think about India and all this. Where does India play? It's the, the, the largest country on the planet in terms of population. If not yet, they will be soon. And, and you know, they, they matter. China matters. Russia matters. But the rest of the planet requires some leadership of the West. And right now, who's it going to be? If it's not us, who is it? And, and if those balances don't exist, then we eventually concede to just being another power that reacts to bigger powers calling the shots for the rest of the planet. I, look, it, it won't happen tomorrow, but it is slowly happening now. And I, I believe I'm a witness to it in the Middle East. Yeah. You, Iran you know, attacked I mean, I, Saudi Arabia with missiles directly from Iranian soil. And right. what did we do? We sent a few Patriot batteries, which we subsequently withdrew. Yeah. To me, that's that's the sort of thing that emboldens Iran to continue to be aggressive. Absolutely, and and then withdrawing destroyers from the Black Sea, in the hope that that will that that will accommodate you know Putin, and then he fires on you know does a demonstration against a British destroyer. So I, I really I, I really think that our adversaries are emboldened these days, and we are in in a period of increasing danger. And uh, and you know, I, I would just ask, what, what is your what what is your response to the? It's kind of a neo isolationist movement these days, right? I think Americans were they were frustrated, right, with the length and cost of the wars in Afghanistan, and Iraq, and and then of course you know COVID nineteen, you know the the recession associated with it, the social divisions laid bare by George Floyd's murder, you know the 
you know, the, uh, the crazy vitriolic partisanship that we see. I think that a lot of Americans are saying, hey, it's time for a period of introspection, right? But but I think with you know, our experience, right, I can't believe it's, you know, so long ago now, you know, over 20 years now, uh, with 9-11 is, and with the pandemic, I think as well, is that problems that develop abroad can only be dealt with at an exorbitant cost once they reach our shores. So could you give your best pitch to our viewers for a reasoned internationalist approach uh, to foreign policy as a counter to what you hear these days, right? Which is, which is sort of a, an argument for retrenchment. Well, the, the argument for retrenchment when the British decided to withdraw east of Suez did not do much to help Britain maintain its status as a global pattern. As a matter of fact, it really was the beginning of the end. And, and, and look, Britain is, a, is an important power. It's an important nation. It's an important partner. But with American power diminishing so much in so, so great a part of the world, it creates a very dangerous period where powers that are authoritarian, uh, powers that are ideological can move forward in a way that really menaces our way of life and the way of life of our of our many allies and friends around the region. It, it's not democracy versus that. It's our way of life. And we don't have to spend all of our wealth and all of our resources to defend that, but we have to be present. We, you know, it, it's, it's not that we need bases everywhere, but it needs to show that we have two things, the capability and the will to use our great power to influence outcomes abroad. And I think what I saw in the Middle East when I was out there in Saudi Arabia, but also half my life in the Middle East fighting along with you, that when, when you are unable to show outcomes that are credible, your power diminishes. And then when you reinforce that diminishment with withdrawal, it creates an opportunity for nefarious powers to gain ascendancy in a way that's not good for us and not good for our, our longevity. You know, John, you mentioned we, we, we spent at least half of our lives right a, a, abroad. And, but uh, the, 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 one of the last questions I'd like to ask you is really about, uh, about, you know, really the situation we're in here in the United States, right? We, you know, we, we are, we are in a period of time that has polarized, I think Americans, right along partisan political lines. And, and you have this kind of crazy interaction between, you know, identity politics, whatever you want to call it, and critical race theory and, and, and all sorts of forms of bigotry and racism. And it seems like there are these centripetal forces that are pulling us apart from one another. You know, you and I spent a lot of time really <laughs> working with people of, of, of really different cultural backgrounds, right? Radically different cultures and religions. And, and what we found, I, I think, is a common humanity that allowed us to work together with, with our dear friends, you know, across the Middle East and in South Asia. As you look at our country today, right, informed by what you've seen abroad, you know, what is your, what, what are your concerns? What's your prognosis? Uh, and what's your prescription? Like, what, what should we do to help strengthen what, what appears to be the worn fabric of our own society? I don't know that I have the solution, HR. You guys at the Hoover Institution should solve that problem. Uh, but I, I will say, look, served in Lebanon, served in Bosnia, served in Kosovo, Macedonia, 
been to the Ukraine, been all over the Middle East. How many different times have we seen societies melt down? Yeah. They, they melt down and they move towards civil war. And Tribalism. we always would yeah. say when we were in the middle of these things, it could never happen to us. Right, right. But I'm not so sure about that. If, if we can't talk to one another, if we can't find common ground to solve problems, if, if we won't grab a hold of our own future, then we're, we're no different than Lebanon. We're no different than Bosnia. We're no different than the former Yugoslavia. You know, we, we have to fight these impulses towards breaking ourselves apart internally. And that, that contract of compromise and moving the nation's agenda forward, and at the same time, being able to help stabilize a broader global community seems to be in jeopardy right now, not because of what's happening to us by external players, but what is happening to us because of ourselves. We have got to get a hold of this. And I, I really believe we've got to get away from this group of politicians who give no alternatives to better futures. Let's turn the country over to the younger people, give them a chance to build the country in the way that they think is best. We're trapped in these silly slogans and silly problems right. that we can't seem to get out of. We've, we, we have got to solve the problem of compromising towards a better future now, or we will regret it 10 years from now. Yeah. This diminishment of American power abroad is more a symptom of us than it is the external for forces that are pushing against us. We, we should go into the latter half of the 21st century with confidence, with capability, with optimism, with prosperity. But all of the trends seem to be pointing in a direction that really worry me. General John Abizade, on behalf of the Hoover Institution, thank you for helping us learn more about battlegrounds important to building a future of peace and prosperity for generations of Americans to come. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.